Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're like me, and I know some of you are, you have marveled at the 20 years of Civil War Talk Radio that have come up with unique and interesting topics week after week, until perhaps this week you saw the topic was plants in the Civil War and concluded that the string has run out. Finally, uh, we're just making things up. That was my initial reaction when I heard about the book, Plants in the Civil War, A Botanical History. But then I read the introduction, and now I can't wait to talk with you about it. We'll do that with author Judith Sumner, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the normal and comfortable place, the third floor of the Brewster Building, no longer on the road. Uh, that's the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, I am not speaking for the university. None of the words you will hear in the next hour can be attributed to ECU uh, or any other institution. And my guest, likewise, speaks only for herself, for nobody else. Well, it's the second half of the fall semester here, October 2023. Midterm exams are over. Uh, starting to get dark by the time this show begins at 7 p.m. Eastern. It is uh, a time to think about academic things as we, we approach eventually the Thanksgiving Day break and then finals. Uh, AI has been a big topic on campuses lately, not just ECU. The form of AI that I found particularly interesting over the last couple of weeks has been not the Students use AI to write papers, but the programming of the food service robots that crisscross campus, these little uh, 
things, they look about the size of those uh, remote-controlled tanks that the Germans used at D-Day on the beaches. Uh, they've got six wheels, and they they sort of like a, a cooler on wheels. And they drive around taking people orders of food. Uh, last year, they were introduced, and they're they're – they're quite charming, actually, to, to see them all lined up patiently waiting to cross the street when the light changes. But in fact, they used to line up in huge queues because they couldn't get across the street fast enough. Only one of them would cross when a light would change and the others would all wait. This year, they seem to have been reprogrammed to be more aggressive. And now two of them will get across in a single light change near the Brewster building. And uh, and they go a little bit faster. You're walking on down the sidewalk you have to really stride to keep up with them. They don't ever run into people, as far as I can tell. Uh, but they, they they seem to have done something with the programming so that they can take more chances crossing the street. Um, as far as I know, none of them have been hit by cars yet, but uh, it, I suppose that's only a matter of time. Uh, speaking of things hit by cars, the ECU football team resembles such a, a victim after uh, just a disastrous outing last Saturday. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Uh, we're not going to talk about my alma mater, Michigan. They're involved in a sign-stealing scandal that threatens to undermine one of the few remaining non-history-related pleasures in my life, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, instead, though, I'll point out that the ECU women uh, soccer team are – in second place, have made the playoffs, could finish in first if they win and somebody else loses on Thursday. Last week, they won a game. They No, they, they won a game. Then they tied a game where they were down two goals at halftime. They had not overcome a two-goal deficit to, to get a result in, I think, 15 years, which seems amazing. Uh, truly, the team is much better than it's ever been in my tenure here. Fun to watch. And I'm also still... Uh, buzzing over the uh, trip to hallowed ground two weeks ago with Stephen Amber's historical tours. Uh, we visited so many interesting places. I met so many nice people. Uh, I'm already excited to go on another of these trips next spring. There's one set for May, one in June. The May one's already waitlisted if you want to get aboard. Uh, the June one, I think, still has places. Uh, but check out the Stephen Amber's Historical Tours website and if and contact them and tell them you want to go on the tour that I'm going on or tell them you want to go on the tour I'm not going on, whichever you prefer. Uh, but the they, they haven't assigned historians to tours yet, and uh, maybe if everybody calls them, they will, they will hurry up and, and get their bookings right for the, the year ahead. You can get your own bookings right for the weeks ahead by going to uh, Civil War Talk Radio online in the form of www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you can you can see who's going to be on the show next. You can see who's uh, you can click on a link to buy T-shirts to represent Civil War Talk Radio everywhere you go. You can, what else can you do there? You can contribute to the show. You can click the PayPal donation button and assuage your guilty conscience for enjoying show after show without paying any money. Uh, feel free to go there and uh, contribute. The recurring donations are especially welcome as they support the Civil War Talk Radio Book and Bourbon Fund. 
I recently emptied out uh, the account to support the American Battlefield Trust. Uh, so I don't use the money purely for selfish uh, personal gain, but rather uh, put some in to make sure that my membership is in good standing and to support battlefield preservation. After coming back from this hallowed ground and seeing how many wonderful sites there are once again, including new ones I'd never seen before, uh, I, I definitely wanted to contribute to that. And I used my money and some of yours, uh, those of you who donated. So, so you can feel you're doing a good deed, not just helping a reprobate historian. As to who's going to be on the show, quick rundown of that. Next week, November, brings us Darren Whipperman and his book about the Ninth Corps called Burnside's Boys. On the 8th of November, Professor Robert Emmett Curran will discuss with us American Catholics and the quest for equality in the Civil War era. On the 15th, we'll talk with Andrew Dalton, who directs the brand new Beyond the Battle Museum in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's it's worth your time if you're ever up there. I've been there. And we'll take a break for Thanksgiving. We'll come back on the 29th of November with a new book of essays titled Wars Civil and Great, The American Experience in the Civil War and World War I. Uh, it's edited by uh, David Sibley and Canazorn Wongsrich-Kanalai, who will be our guest uh, that night. And we'll finish up the fall season on December 6th with John Banks and his book, A Civil War Road Trip of a Lifetime, Antietam, Gettysburg, and Beyond. Speaking of Banks, uh, in 1856, Nathaniel Banks, and you know Nathaniel Banks from the, the Valley Campaign in 1862. In 1856, Banks was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives after two months and 133 ballots. Uh, future historians will note that today, on October 25th, 2023, the House elected a Speaker in half as much time as that, uh, just oh, barely a month, and many fewer ballots. It's a pretty low bar to say political division isn't as bad now as it was in 1856. But since there are people out there, uh, not anyone listening to this show, of course, uh, but maybe your neighbors, uh, who have forgotten or perhaps never learned that the divisions of the 1850s led to three-quarters of a million Americans dying in a... a terrible war. So I, I guess it's up to you and me to remind our less well-aware neighbors that no sane person ever wants to go down that road again. Uh, and we would do better to focus on things we can all agree on. Uh, for example, we can all agree on having a profound lack of interest in the upcoming World Series between the Rangers and Diamondbacks unless you actually live in Arlington, Texas or somewhere in Arizona. Well, let's go back to the other thing we agree on, which is our interest in the Civil War, and talk with our guest tonight, Judith Sumner, who is the author of the book, uh, Plants in the Civil War, A Botanical History. Uh, Ms. Sumner, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Gerald. Welcome. And uh, please call me Jerry. Only my, my late mother ever called me Gerald. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and and do you go? May I call you Judith or Judy? What what do I you use prefer? Judith. That is right. Uh, well, while we're talking names, are are you related to the Massachusetts senator of the same name? My husband is. Um, my husband Stephen Sumner, 
uh, is a relative of Charles Sumner. That is correct. I believe all Sumners in this country are related in one way or another. Huh. Interesting. So it's not that common of a name, certainly. So that makes sense that that would be the case. Well, I think it means summoner as in summoner of the law courts. Right. And like you, my husband is an attorney. Ah, so so very appropriate name. I I imagine all Prokopoviches are probably related too in some way, but I've never, never (laughs) pursued that. Um, let me ask. I, I was fascinated uh, to read this book, because I hope I hinted that in the introduction. Uh, what is your professional background? Uh, is, is this your day job, writing about history? Do you, uh, well, what? my 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 longtime day job uh, has been as a college professor of biology. Uh, mm-hmm. My graduate training at the University of Massachusetts was in classical botany. Um, I trained originally and got my doctorate actually in um, botanical research based in the South Pacific, and I was part of a larger study group working on the flora of the Fiji Islands. But I've always had a, a wider interest in how people use plants and how people and plants interact and what happens at that point in time when people's needs are desperate and what can they turn to? They turn to the plant kingdom. And so medicinal plants, food plants, fiber plants, timber, these have always been big interests of mine. And my writing, um, which is now my full-time thing, I have retired from teaching, so I, I spend my time now writing books. My writing has focused on what I call historic economic botany. I got the idea so, for military botany uh, several years ago, focusing particularly on World War II. And I wrote, published a book called um, Plants Go to War in 2019. And at that point, I guess I was you know, thinking there certainly are other wars in which plants have played a major role and started looking into the Civil War story. And, and that, that investigation resulted in this book. Well, first let me then apologize, Dr. Sumner, for not using your proper title. Uh, I've got a, a PDF of your manuscript. I don't have the, the physical book in front of me, so I didn't have a description of your uh, of your background. Uh, but that also answers a question I was going to ask, which is on the, the f- first page or inside the, the cover of uh, the book, there's a little notice that says, this book was peer-reviewed. Now, you know, when you get a book from a university press, the assumption is it's peer-reviewed. But McFarland is your publisher. They're quasi-academic. They publish some works by academically trained people and some that aren't. Uh, Did you negotiate with them to put that line in there? Did they decide to do that? I I found it very interesting. Um, They did it uh, because Mm -hmm. the book was indeed peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think we're hoping that people will adopt it as a as a book for a course, perhaps a cross disciplinary course that looks at both environmental science and history. Um, and my first book, my other book with them, the World War II book, was also peer reviewed. I mean that makes uh, again it makes perfect sense, and I can certainly see using I will certainly be using information from this book when I next teach about the Civil War. Uh, but it does help distinguish uh, 
you know, we're, we're in a field in Civil War studies where so many people without, uh, with a lot of enthusiasm but, but no training will, will write a book. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes they're very good books. Uh, but sometimes they're dreadful. And uh, at least when you're peer-reviewed, you know somebody has said, you know, she knows what she's talking about. Uh, and that, that comes through certainly in this book. Um, you mentioned some of the things that, that the book covers uh, – the the uh, you know timber medicine uh, agriculture there are so many different ways people use plants and uh, I doubt we'll have time to cover them all but we'll get started in just a moment we're going to take a short break and come back and talk about uh, how plants are used in the Civil War which is the topic of the book appropriately titled plants in the civil war a botanical history it's written by dr judith sumner who's our guest tonight i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Judith Sumner, author of Plants in the Civil War, a Botanical History. We just started to to get into the question of what 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 do plants have to do with the Civil War? Uh, I wondered that before I picked the book up or opened the PDF and uh, was immediately drawn in, uh, uh, Judith, by your description of how 
you know, right from the start, what was the war about? Uh, well, slavery. And what is slavery about? Essentially, cotton. Cotton's a plant. Uh, it's inescapable, it seems. Uh, did, did that hit you over the head when you started on this topic? Well, when I started on the topic, I, I really wanted to pursue the history of the cash crops. What exactly mm-hmm. were the plants that were being grown on these vast plantations? And why was it that economically they required enslaved labor? And so certainly the pinnacle was cotton, king cotton. Mm-hmm. But there were four other crops that really led up to it. Uh, indigo, tobacco, rice, and sugar cane. And then mm-hmm. ultimately cotton really prevailed. But if you go way back to the early 18th century, uh, indigo was a big crop, uh, it was based on a plant from Asia, but also uh, a comparable species from tropical America. Early colonists planted it. Um, it was the source of a, a beautiful blue, a very stable dye uh, for textiles. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were uh, slave-cultivated indigo plantations in colonial South Carolina. And it was a big British market uh, for the dye uh, that mm-hmm. waned after the Revolutionary War. Uh, indigo then uh, became just a minor crop, but then along came uh, tobacco. We think of tobacco today as a vice, but if you go back to the early 1800s, it was believed to be a medicinal plant. Uh, as early as the 1600s, there were herbalists who described tobacco as a preventative for plague, and so mm. people wanted it. They thought it was going to somehow going to keep them from from contracting bubonic plague. And uh, tobacco is a, a very labor-intensive crop because uh, there were consecutive crops that were sown, and the leaves had to be picked and dried and cured and all of this. And between the cultivation, the harvesting, and the curing, it took a lot of hands-on labor. And then rice. Rice had its own set of risks. Rice is cultivated in water. It's an Asian grass, and um, the paddies of the traditional Asian agriculture could be simulated by the tidal swamps and the river floodplains in South Carolina. And so enslaved Africans uh, were used to clear the native vegetation and build levees to maintain these flooded rice fields. Uh, the thing that's and- interesting is that there was a great fear of malaria. And very early on, growers noticed that many of the enslaved workers were seemed to be immune to malaria. And that actually is true. Um, if, um, if you have inherited a single gene, a single allele for sickle cell anemia, mm-hmm. you do not have the effects of sickle cell anemia, which requires double recessive, requires both alleles to actually have the full-blown disease. But if you mm-hmm. carry just one one allele, if you're a carrier, in other words, you are functionally immune to malaria uh, because the little organism that causes malaria gets inside a red blood cell. And if you have a small amount of the abnormal hemoglobin in there, that causes that blood cell to form an odd shape. It is immediately recognized by a white blood cell. It is engulfed and killed. And so, in fact, depending upon where the enslaved people came from, as many as 40% of them were immune to malaria. Uh, which, from the viewpoint of their owners and the overseers and the planters, really suited them for work in these flooded rice fields. 
Uh, Sugarcane, another alien plant. It was a, originated as a wild grass in Papua New Guinea. And again, a lot of labor involved. There are perpetual cuttings and planting and and the crushing of the stems to actually get the juice. And this also was a vastly uh, labor-intensive crop. And then all of this culminated, as you mentioned, with cotton, uh, which became known as uh, the economic king cotton of the American southern colonies. It was widely grown across the south. Also, there was an upland variety that was grown on the coastal islands. Um, So I wanted uh, to know something about those five crops. Mm -hmm. And I might add, the thing that to me is interesting is that they're all non-native, and there's not Mm -hmm. one of them that was absolutely essential. They were all essentially luxury crops, even cotton, Mm -hmm. because people can easily wear linen. Linen linen grew across uh, across all the colonies. And so we didn't have to have cotton. We didn't have to have tobacco. Any, any of those is, is, is essentially a luxury item that was not required. But uh, this was the economic basis of, of the South. Well, you, you described the, the spread of cotton. I, you have some discussion of the, uh, the cotton gin story, one of those stories that every, everyone learns in middle school. I asked my students this recently. You know, why did cotton spread? Who was responsible? And they all, as one said, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. And your your book points out, as as uh, Angela Laqueta has pointed out in her work, that Whitney developed a cotton gin, but he didn't invent it. Uh, there were other ways to get seeds out. Uh, but but certainly that does lead to the uh, the the perfecting of the gin. The improvements in it did lead to. Uh, the spread of this. I was interested to learn that the, the cotton, cotton is not just good for for the fibers that produce cloth, but you get you get other products out of cotton. Can you talk about that? Well, once once the ginning of cotton became commonplace and mm-hmm. cotton crops increased vastly, people operating the gin would end up with buckets and buckets of seeds and. Um, Sometimes they were spread on fields and used basically as, as a manure, a fertilizer. <laughs> Apparently they smelled terrible when they decomposed. But then uh, two, two additional industries developed based on, on just this, this dross, this refuse from, from the cotton fibers. Uh, the seeds could be pressed and uh, they yield an oil. Uh, the oil was used uh, to treat leather it was used uh, to oil machinery, and it was used in lamps. Um, I gave a lecture just last week, and uh, I was asked at the lecture, did, was it never used in cooking? And oh. it, it's used in cooking now, but I don't think I found anything at all about the use of cottonseed oil in cooking during the 19th century. Maybe hmm. they didn't realize it was edible. That I don't know about, but I, I think it was used basically um, as an industrial oil. And then when all the oil was pressed out of the seeds, you were left with all the seed coats, the hulls of the seeds. And those were pressed into animal feed, seed cakes. And so there were these other industries that were spawned by the growing of the fibers just because you had all this waste and what can we do with all of this waste? And it turns out that they, that also had some economic implica- implications. 
In your book, you talk about plants not just in the South, although that dominates the the, the narrative. But I was surprised to learn that the cotton was grown in at least a little bit uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line. Did, did you expect to find that? No, that was a surprise. That was a surprise indeed. Uh, but, you, you know, I think the 19th century was a period of time of experimentation. Mm-hmm. And if people heard about a crop that was successful in one place, they were willing to try it and see if it might grow elsewhere. Uh, I think cotton cotton in the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic states would probably never be as successful as it was in the South. Mm-hmm. Because in the South, it was basically grown as a perennial shrub with repeated harvestings each year. And the yield was just amazing. And I don't think you would have seen that in other parts of the country. Um, Plus the whole matter of labor. Uh, In the Northeast or the Mid-Atlantic states, you just did not have the labor to go out there and pick all of the cotton. Uh, And that was was an arduous task. And it was also painful because the cotton bowls themselves are down in a a, um, capsule that is sharp. And you Mm -hmm. have to reach down in there with your fingers and you get pricked and... It's an unpleasant task. The uh, the methods of growing cotton and, and harvesting it bring to mind. Uh, I recall reading a uh, biography of James Henry Hammond, uh, which was written by Drew Faust, uh, who at one time was a president of Harvard University, and that gives me a chance to remind listeners that hey, I went to Harvard once. Um, try to do that on every show. Uh, but uh, Professor Faust wrote about Hammond as an agricultural uh, innovator. He was interested in scientific agriculture in, in growing cotton in South Carolina. And you talk quite a bit about the different methods. Uh, people didn't understand, certainly, didn't have, have the degree of, of chemical and scientific knowledge that that farmers have today. Uh but they they didn't just throw seeds out in the field and then see what happened. Uh, they were trying all kinds of things. Well, the agricultural journals are filled with advertisements. The agricultural journals of the time mm-hmm. are filled with advertisements for different strains of cotton. And then eventually, after cotton had been grown for several years, the soil was completely devoid of nutrients. Cotton roots mm-hmm. go down several feet into the soil. And uh, with the volume that was being grown, and was being grown intensively year after year in the same place, no crop rotation, mm. the nu- nutrients that cotton needed were gone. And that's when there was a vast amount of interest in guano. Uh, guano had been discovered, as you know, by Alexander Van Humboldt in the early 1800s. It's basically a, a, a natural product, it's bird dung that could be mined mm-hmm. from these South American islands. And the islands were literally gigantic piles of bird dung in the ocean. It was an expensive undertaking because someone had to go there and gather this stuff up. <laughs> and you know, pickaxes, I'm sure, was extremely unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And then it had to be shipped to the U.S., so it wasn't an inexpensive fertilizer, but it was highly effective with very high levels of the exact same minerals that we find in commercial fertilizers today, N, P, and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And that restored the, uh, the chemical health of fertilizer levels in southern soils and allowed cotton, cotton cultivation, intensive co- cotton cultivation to continue. But there were all kinds of theories. 
there were all kinds of theories. And for people that couldn't afford actual guano, and I might add that there was a lot of cheating in the guano market. Uh, you know, the same way that we see uh, adulterated foods in the 19th century, mm-hmm. there were plenty of examples of adulterated guano that had been stretched with sawdust or ground-up leaves, whatever people had, just to make it go a little further before they sold it to you. But he had farmers who were not wealthy, maybe who only had one or two enslaved people, or maybe no enslaved people, who needed to improve their soils. And they, they were making their own so-called artificial guanos, using urine and leaves and wood chips, whatever was available. It's basically composting is what it boiled down to. So, this was all new. I think there was the idea going into yeah. this that, that somehow God would provide and the earth would always have sufficient nutrients to support whatever we were growing, and that's just not true. And so um, I think you, you really see the beginnings of modern agriculture uh, being sown at this point, that uh, people are realizing that it's it's best to rotate crops, and if you can't rotate crops, then you're going to have to have a plan for replacing nutrients. And of course, the other solution that Southern planters had was just abandon the land and go further west. Land is so cheap, um, just wreck the soil, then move on, and that that gets us into the expansion to the western territories, and then we've got a civil war over that. So bringing us back to our theme. You you write also about food crops. Um, and as you said uh, when you started talking, how interesting it is when people are, are desperate, the things they will turn to. Uh, you suggest that the, the southern states did switch uh, their emphasis from cash crops to food crops during the war out of necessity. Uh, but I was very surprised uh, to read right at the end of the book that as much as 80% of southern land was not in cultivation. Uh, that, that fact really surprised me. Well, exactly what you mentioned, Jerry, the idea that if, 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 a, if land becomes useless because nutrients have been removed, uh. just go and clear more land. That certainly did happen on some mm-hmm. plantations, and some enslaved people were tasked with clearing more and more land. And so you'd farm a field for so many years, and when the crops diminished on that field, you would just simply move elsewhere. The problem is that clearing land on many plantations involved removing large trees and the root systems of large trees, and it was very, very arduous work. And plus, in fact, land was not infinite, and and in some cases, uh, land had to be reused, even if, um, uh, because all the land in a plantation had been cleared. This is something that Frederick Law Olmsted wrote about uh, when he visited the South prior to the Civil War. He traveled I think he made three big trips through the South, and he wrote extensively about how sad some of the land looked and how the trees on the land were stunted and the plants were yellowed, and he attributed this to the loss of nutrients. He eventually became head of the U.S. Sanitary Commission and was responsible for siting siting encampments for the the Union Army. Um, But... The... um, So... I, as I said, I was surprised at how much land was not being used. Uh, that brought also, also up the question of what land was being used for and uh, and how important it was to, to, to grow food, obviously, uh, for the enslaved labor force, for the uh, the white population in the South. Uh, 
they they needed food, and uh, corn is one of the elements of that. There are a lot of things most of us who study the Civil War think we know. You know, corn is the main food crop. Soldiers ate hardtack and salt pork, uh, but there's much more to it. And uh, we'll take another short break. We'll come back, talk more with our guest, uh, Judith Sumner, uh, about what people did grow and eat during the Civil War years. She's the author of Plants in the Civil War, a Botanical History. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Judith Sumner, author of Plants in the Civil War, a Botanical History. We've been talking about cotton, uh, certainly the, the most significant plant in terms of the politics of the pre-war era. But during the war, uh, you can't eat cotton, and the South had to uh, focus on food crops, as did the North. Uh, I was interested to learn how many crops were relatively new in the United States, that uh, um, things like like uh, sorghum or, or black-eyed peas, or cow peas, some people call them, uh, had not been around uh, for all that long uh, before the mid mid nineteenth century. What was a lot of, were a lot of different plants brought into the United States uh, in the nineteenth century. Uh, yes, absolutely, and certainly um, as enslaved people arrived from Africa, uh, there were plants that that came with them as well, including um, including cow peas or crowder peas, which became a traditional dish. But those those in fact were were brought uh, from Africa, as were eggplants. Mm-hmm. Um, and the official position of the Confederate government was to plant plant crops, plant corn, not cotton, bred for the mm-hmm. South. 
and all of the agricultural magazines and journals and papers of the time urged farmers to set aside the big cash crops, keep the seeds, set those aside, and and grow um, corn, wheat, potatoes, sorghum, peas, alfalfa, uh, turnips were encouraged. Tur- turnips were interesting because they could be either a food for humans or for livestock, uh, following sort of the English tradition of uh, feeding turnips to livestock. So varieties of turnips and rutabagas were, were advertised for late summer and fall planting. And uh, sometimes the green shoots were harvested for family meals, and then the big taproot was harvested for winter use or to feed the animals. Some farmers continued to try to grow cotton. They didn't have a way to, they didn't have an easy way to sell it. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They were not. They were not willing to completely abandon cotton cultivation. But what the Confederacy needed, both for military and civilian needs, was was food. Were food plants, and uh, the raids on many plantations went right for food. Any mm-hmm. stored food was destroyed. Fields were trampled, burned, and destroyed. And so to replace this and keep people from starving, uh, it was essential to grow, to grow food plants. And, of course, a lot of this work had to be done by women and children at home, older people at home, because the men who were of the age of traditional farmers were off uh, serving the military. Now, because of the pressures of the war, you point out there's a lot of substitution going, a lot of air sets, uh, uh, things are being used. I, I was uh, somewhat horrified to read about coffee substitutes that if you that were not actually safe, that, that you could be paralyzed by drinking too much of these. Were there a lot of dangerous plants that they didn't quite understand what they were growing? Well, there are toxic plants. Um, and uh, during uh, the war years, there was a, a wonderful compendium put together by a uh, southern medical doctor and botanist named Francis Pear Porcher called mm-hmm. Resources of Southern Fields and Forests. Uh, he did not personally have firsthand information about every one of these plants. Some of his recommendations might have been a little bit risky, um, but people had to, people had to experiment. Um, for instance... One of the plants he suggested using for coffee uh, were the roots of comfrey. And comfrey, uh, if you ingest too much of it, uh, can actually uh, do liver damage. And so there was a certain amount of, shall we say, experimental eating and experimental development of medicines during the Civil mm-hmm. War just because supplies were cut off from the North through the blockades and people had to make do with what with whatever was available. But yes, coffee certainly uh, was considered a stimulant. It was considered medicinal. Uh, there was high, very high coffee consumption among Union troops, about eight cups mm-hmm. daily. They considered it a nerve talk tonic, and they just really could not go on without it in many cases. But for Confederate troops, they just had to use whatever they 
could roast, and that would be the roots of a variety of different plants, beans, chicory, dandelions, comfrey, and then seeds, acorns, peas, peanuts, okra, anything that had a seed that could be roasted and it, it turned dark and you'd grind it up and you'd get some kind of a flavor out of it. Even cotton seeds were roasted and ground up and uh, steeped in hot water to make a coffee-like beverage. That, that does not sound good. And, and, no, but the I idea don't think it does one, sound good. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that one needs coffee to get through the day is certainly not unique to the Civil War. Uh, th- talking about uh, uh, Porcher's work, and, and you, you write about medicines as well, that, that there's a lot of experimentation with medicine. And the theme that, that kept coming up that I, I saw was that they discovered a lot of plants that had healing qualities when used in moderation, uh, but you could overdose uh, uh, on them quite easily. Opium is an obvious example, which they had uh, uh, access to. How did they, was it just trial and error uh, to figure yeah, out how much exactly you could right, take? exactly right, Jerry, trial and error. Well, this, this is a, a theme that we see with medicinal botany mm-hmm. since ancient times, that, that the dose makes the medicine, as the, as the mystic Paracelsus said. In other words, a small amount is, is medicinal, or a moderate amount is medicinal, and a large amount is toxic. Because uh, we always have to remember that the reason that plants have these medicinal compounds is not so that we can have medicines. These yes. compounds evolved because plants are sessile, and you've got herbivores trying to eat them. You've got all kinds of microbes trying to infest their roots and seeds. And so these compounds evolved as natural toxins, either to poison or, or at least discourage insect-eating bugs and animals, or in some cases to serve as, um, as antibiotics, and even in some cases to poison the soil so that other plants can't grow near them, so that they kind of have their own little territoriality established. And so the compounds that are medicinal have, have these other functions in nature, and dose is important. And yes, it was absolutely a matter of, uh, of experimentation, trying some and seeing what the effective dose might be. Uh, and sometimes the effective dose is alarmingly close, close to the toxic dose. Mm. The, the big issue in the South, oh, of course, was malaria. And they did not, at this point, no one really understood what caused malaria, but they knew it had something to do with swampy areas. They attributed malaria to miasma, basically bad smells, we now know that this concept of miasma is nothing more than methane coming from decomposing swamp vegetation, and that the real link to swamps is that this is where the mosquitoes breed. Their larvae uh, are in the water. The adults come up out of the water as the larvae mature, and it's the adult mosquitoes that are the vectors for these little plasmodium organisms that cause malaria. Um, so in the south, because of the blockade, they did not have access to quinine. The uh, Union Army had, had plenty of quinine, and uh, those troops took prophylactic doses of quinine daily. Before they even had malaria, they were dosing themselves with quinine, and, and the quinine kept malaria at bay. In the South, um, they had to try other plants. And uh, it's interesting to me as a botanist that I guess they were looking at the concept of bark because quinine is purified from the bark 
of a tree, the cinchona or a feverback tree. And so I guess the idea in the South was, well, we'll simply try other barks. And the amazing thing is that there is a close botanical relative of fever bark uh, that grows in the South in a very narrow little range of Georgia and Florida, a little bit, I think, in South Carolina. And it's known as Georgia bark. And it does have quinine-like capacity. It does seem to produce alkaloids that are very close, if not identical, to the quinine in fever bark. It was a rare tree. Confederate government was trying to get people to collect it and send them the bark, and they would process it into, into uh, some sort of a medicine, probably a tonic. And then some of the other plants that they tried were the bark of dogwood, uh, the bark of tulip tree, which happens to be the state tree of uh, Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, willow. There was one supposedly quite effective tonic that was made from, from those three, the tulip tree, the dogwood, and the black willow. The black willow uh, provided flavoring. Uh, that, that is the source of um, basically an oil of wintergreen uh, flavor. Mm. So that made, the, that made the tonic palatable. And now we see uh, in the labs that um, dogwood does have some anti-malarial action. It does seem to kill plasmodia in the test tube. And so it may have actually worked. Um, and then for high fevers, uh, again, just trial and error, uh, they used mm-hmm. bone set. And they identified bone set using the old, the old European idea that dates from the Middle Ages of the doctrine of signatures. Uh, and hmm. This was an old herbal practice in which you'd look at the plant and see if the plant could somehow tell you what its uses might be. Hmm. In the case of bone set, the pairs of leaves on opposite sides of the stem actually fuse across the stem. And so it looks like the stem is going up through, through one, one entire leaf. It's just basically all around the stem. And the herbalists interpreted this as fusion. And they said, well, this plant must be good for knitting together broken bones. And <laughs> the fever that today we call dengue fever at the time was known as breakbone fever. The pain was so intense that the victim felt as if his bones were breaking. Mm. Dengue fever is associated with very high fevers, as can be malaria. And so bone set was made into a tonic and used both for dengue fever, breakbone fever, and malaria. And, and again, seems to be effective, does in fact seem to lower, lower bodily temperatures uh, in the event of one of these infections. So absolutely, trial and error. And, you know, some of, the, some of these drugs turned out to be effective and some did not. Certainly opium, uh, opium shortages in the South were critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, women were encouraged to grow opium in their gardens. Uh, opium poppies can naturalize, and so sometimes around old homesteads, abandoned areas, there were opium poppies that could be collected and uh, turn, it, turn it over to the Confederate government because if you're going into war and there are injuries, there is no, mm. there is no substitute for opium when it comes to, to pain relief. And that has been the case in every war. Um, 
sometimes opium was used, sometimes uh, the alkaloids from it were purified. For instance, morphine is one of the many alkaloids in, in opium. And then, of course, the unfortunate thing is that opium was used not just for pain, but for many other ailments as well. And it was used for fevers, and it was used for, I think, liver and kidney complaints. And there were so many really severe injuries and so many uh, horrendous Mm -hmm. amputations during the Civil War that many men did become addicted to opium. And it became known, opium addiction became known as the soldier's disease. And some men continued to uh, self-medicate with opium after the war. And then, of course, another industry sprung up, sanitariums, that offered to, to help you break, help victims of this break the opium habit. We're, we're running short on time, so I just want to give listeners a, a, a suggestion of how much more there is in, in this book. It's, it's not a long book, uh, but it touches on so many things. Uh, you, you talk about You talked about tree bark, but you also talk at length in the book about uh, timber and the, the vast appetite the war had for trees, um, the many, many uses made of wood that we don't think of today, uh, and products we don't think of as plants necessarily, uh, rubber, turpentine, pitch, paper, uh, all these things that come ultimately from trees or other plants. Uh, so listeners, if you think you've read it all, uh, the Here's here's a new angle. Uh, Plants in the Civil War, a botanical history, is the name of the book. Its author is our guest tonight, Dr. Judith Sumner. Uh, Judith, it was a great pleasure talking with you and learning about this topic. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.